Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Mr. Cody Rich. How we doing, man? <laughs> Good. Good. I, uh, I could sense from your text messages that you were... A little surprised that we're not Skyping right now. <laughs> Listen, I, not everyone not, has a million dollar budget like you, Jay, to run some mm-hmm. fancy smanchy podcast studio yeah. setup. I don't know what you have, but we keep it simple over here at the Fine Back. Hey, listen, I got a $74 mic that I've been running <laughs> since for three years now. I have the same setup. I've seen your headsets, though. Your mobile headsets are worth more than that. Yeah, the mobile headsets are expensive. Yeah. No, I don't know. I I knew that a lot of guys use Skype when they podcasted and... uh, but it, I don't know, uh, maybe because the internet connection where I live is just brutal. Um, I actually, so when I first started recording these, the first probably, I don't know, five or six maybe, were, I, and I'm a, I'm a complete, this just goes to show if anyone out there is thinking about starting a podcast and the technical side of it is scaring you, this proves that you can pull it off because I did it. Um, <laughs> I was literally running... For some reason, I thought that I had to run the. I I wasn't doing Skype, but I was running it through my computer, and so I was hooking my, I was running my audio recorder like my Zoom through a Google phone call, and so the only that, that works, doesn't it? It does work, but the the I mean, you can the 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 only thing dumber then not running a Skype call because your internet sucks is then getting back on the internet and running your phone call through <laughs> Google. I was, it was just like hit or miss and like 50% of the calls would drop halfway through. I was like, man, yeah. the hardest part about podcasting is just getting the phone call to stay on the whole time. And then it hit me. All you're doing is making a phone call. Why not just you know, make, get an attachment that plugs right into your phone. And so now that's what I do. And you know, I'm, I learn, but no, that's smart. No, I, I remember the early days, man, I didn't know anything about, about it. So like drop calls all the time, losing audio files. Like there's definitely more than once that like entire podcast didn't get recorded. So yeah, I have been through the rigmarole. Well, and you were kind of the, the, I guess we're just jumping into it, man. I, I, I was hoping this would just naturally just, we, so we're just going to, you were kind of the first, like, at least as far as I know, um, as far on my end, I'm sure there might've been other hunting podcasts out there. I know a couple other guys, like, I don't know, maybe Jay Scott, I would guess was running one before you maybe, or Randy mm-hmm. Newberg, maybe. Um, it's funny. It's funny, uh, when, I, when I had the idea, is I listened to podcasts for a long time, and I was like, you know what, I should do a hunting podcast, because there was not one when I thought about it, 
And within like, I, I decided that I was going to start one and two weeks later was my deadline. So I kind of gave myself this like two week deadline to build a podcast and I kicked it out. And ironically, I think in that same time, in that two weeks, Brian Call launched his Long Security Bowman. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Jay, Jay Scott, I think, had launched his like probably the week before, but I didn't even know about it. And so, like, like all three of us kind of launched a, within the same month, I think. <laughs> That's how it goes. Uh, yeah, Gritty Bowman, I, I guess I, uh, <clears throat> his has been what, a little over two years, maybe three? Uh, three years, because I started April of february so yeah i mean three years now yeah i mean you know and and the reason i bring that up is you know you not that there was another podcast out there but there was another hunting podcast i literally when i so this is how i learned what headsets to use i was too prideful to just message one of you guys that have been doing it for a couple years but I'm like, I want the best and I've got to find out what these are. I literally watched like like minutes and minutes and probably hours of YouTube videos of podcasts that had been filmed on YouTube. <laughs> trying, to, and, and they would have the headsets on, but it wasn't always easy to see the writing on the side until finally somebody's episode like took a shot from the side. <laughs> I froze it. And wrote down and I was like, oh, okay, it's a, you know, it's this. And, and that's how I learned. Um, but you didn't have that advantage. You just were a pioneer and, and, uh, that's impressive, man. Which is funny. Cause you could have totally just messaged me <laughs> and been like, Hey, what's this? And I literally have a list. Cause I've been asked this question so many times that yeah. I literally have a gear list for podcasts and <laughs> software and everything to get started. And I, I've, I've probably helped at least a half dozen if not a dozen podcasts get started and just kind of been like yeah here's the gear i use blah 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 i don't know if it's you know works for you some people go like i had i didn't spend a lot of money on it and i should probably update my gear by now but i haven't <laughs> um but yeah you like all that work you did you could have just messaged me and been like hey <laughs> yeah well and 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 this is why because there's i think there's a misconception at least i had a misconception that and I know now after having ran my own for a few months now that it's not the case, but I thought for sure that that would offend you. You know, you, you being <laughs> someone that already had a podcast, I thought, oh, they're not going to want to help another guy start a podcast. Well, the misconception is that if, you know, if there's multiple podcasts out there, like you're going to steal listeners from someone and it's just, it's just not the case. Um, yeah. th- that's like saying you don't want another Instagram page to start. Here's the honest truth. I I think, and then again, this is just my short experience. Most guys aren't going to keep it going that start one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Secondly, it's, it's not easy to be good. Um, you know, it, it takes a, I think a certain personality, a little bit of an inquisitive uh, mindset and you got to have the interviewing skills. Um, and that's, it's not, you know, it's not something that a lot of people just naturally have. Um, but, but most importantly, like, it's not one of those things that pushes out another podcast. Everyone wants another good podcast to listen to. Um, no, and exactly the way I look at it and, um, my good buddy, Ben O'Brien and I had this conversation when he was starting his and I was kind of like, I helped him completely because the, the hun- is that the it, hunting like, collective? Yeah. The hunting yeah. collective, really good podcast. Ben yeah, did an is. awesome job. And I look at it as like, Ben's going to find consumers you know podcast consumers and this world is so new that like ben's gonna go out and he's gonna find 
consumers and you know show people what a podcast is that probably didn't know or never really got into it and from there it's only going to grow the market so i like this this thing and there's a lot of people that don't believe in this whole you know a rising tide raises all ships but when you really understand that like you know you having a podcast you're going to reach a certain amount of audience that i'm not going to reach right. and then they're going to come back and they're like oh i really like this podcast and this podcast and this podcast and the reality is is like we all listen to multiple podcasts it's yeah. not like It'd be like hunting TV shows. If there was only one hunting TV show, you'd be like, oh, that's kind of good, but I'd kind of like to watch something else now. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and naturally the, uh, the cream, so to speak, is going to rise to the top. And, and, it's, it's, and that's a good thing because there's competition, meaning, you know, um, if there was, like you said, if there was just one hunting TV show or one podcast, the competition to be a better podcast or get a better guest or to ask better questions or whatever um it it wouldn't be there you know and so naturally it forces me to try to be better and you to be better so that more people listen and and you know it stays entertaining so i i love it i'm i like i said i can't find enough good hunting podcasts um you know surprisingly so i i think there's i think there's still going to yeah. be room for guys out there someone right now is listening thinking man i'm going to start my podcast and uh, and hopefully it's it's a, it's a good one so no and for sure and i think there's something like advice to anyone that wants to start a podcast the barrier to entry is you know pretty it's pretty minimal like i started <laughs> my entire podcast in two weeks for probably less than 100 bucks and you could probably do it cheaper but the problem is, is like Anybody who wants, I talk to a lot of people and I think they, they think they're going to get into podcasting to get paid. And <laughs> the harsh reality is that it's just, I mean, it can happen, but it's so much work that I think that's a misconception that people don't realize is that, you know, I spent two years doing this to kind of just grow my network and not to get paid. And it's going to, I told a lot of people like, you know, there's going to be a lot of podcasts that pop up and get 30 episodes in or a hundred episodes in and go, what am I doing? Like, this is tough. And me being early, it was completely different. I mean, now coming into the market, it's, it's going to be super hard to get paid. And I mean, just, just figure a hundred weeks, at least a hundred episodes yeah. before you even have that conversation. Yeah. Um, and so like, I think it's just important to go into it for the right reasons. You know, if you're going into it, wanting to learn, one and like playing the long game if you're like hey you know and maybe there's a lot of people that just want to be in the hunting industry you know they want it so bad and i i, I think that's a great way to go and a podcast is great for that but just know that it's going to take you 10 times longer than you thought yeah and and frankly i think you hit on it the be like frankly like if your real motive is to make money on a podcast don't do it like yeah you know it's just not worth it um if 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 you're like me and so, so this is my podcast story. And then I'm actually curious kind of why, you know, why you love your podcast, but I would, I, I found what I realized is that I was having these conversations once a week anyway. Mm -hmm. And all I had to do was hit record basically. Now the person has changed. It was usually before it was, you know, your close buddies that, you know, I, I wouldn't have naturally just reached out to you and had an hour conversation about, you know, elk hunting and sharps rifles and backcountry food box like we're going to but mm -hmm. i was having those those similar conversations with my hunting buddies you know once a week anyway and so for me it's just been just hit record and and i love it um you know it's something that i would be doing wait a minute i am doing it and i'm not making money in fact i'm losing money you know <laughs> it, it costs me the equipment alone um but then 
I'm an I'm illiterate. I told you with editing and stuff. I don't edit. Um, I send it to, you know, it costs me, you know, maybe 10, 15 bucks to have every episode edited. You know, this thing costs me money. And I, you know, you're a lot, your uh, podcast is a lot more mature. And so you do have some sponsorships and you have your own things that you're, you're promoting as well. But I, you know, if people realize like, I don't have, I have zero, this is sponsored by Dustin Whitworth. This is sponsored by <laughs> Team Backcountry, which is, you know, just not even a business yet. And so, yeah, this is this is just because I love it. And if that's your reason, then you need to be, you know, if it's easier to just push record, you need to be doing a podcast. If yeah. your motive is, oh, man, because like you said, 100 episodes is, I think, is a sweet spot. I was told by someone, um, it was actually on another podcast, not a hunting-related one, but 100 downloads or 100,000 downloads would be a good, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh mark to hit before you even hit up you know anyone for sponsorship money because you know it's just not worth their time or or their money at the, until that point but anyway yeah good, good stuff man why well let me ask you this how has your podcast made you like just a better backcountry hunter in general like what are some some things so I guess it kind of stems back to our, the reason I, one of the big reasons I started the podcast. I mean, a lot of it was like, yeah, I wanted to network, but I remember being on a mountain chasing a particular bull and thinking like, how does Dan Evans do this? And I was like, man, I would just love to pick their brain. Like, I think I had just gotten to a point where I had read every book, every magazine, every article, and I listened to a lot of podcasts in the marketing world and the business world and things like that. And they, I love the format that was just like this open conversation where you could have dialect in regards to like problem solving. And so for me, it was like, man, I really just wanted to have an open conversation and with people that were way ahead of me. And so how, how do you have that opportunity to do that? You have to create value to those people. And so having the podcast was like the perfect way to, you know, open that conversation to people that were, you know, way above me and had more experience. And so for me, that's kind of where it stemmed from. And it's definitely made me a better backcountry hunter because you sit there and you, you talk about it all the time. And I think you just running through scenarios and running through things. And I, I, I talk about hunting year round now and it's, it's interesting to, uh, to have those conversations. And I think it, I think it makes me better. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. No. And that's, <clears throat> Do you, I mean, there's just not like, there's not a piece of gear really, or a tactic or something that that goes unnoticed when you're, when you're recording and you're in this world every week, I think, mm-hmm. um, even as a listener, you know, you don't even have to be running your own podcast. Um, just as a listener, you know, honestly, there's just, there's so much free, valuable information that's being given uh, willingly by people who have so much more experience than I will ever have probably. And so many more successes than I'll ever have. <laughs> and yeah. it's just, it's just there. If you, uh, you know, if you can't find out something, it's cause you're probably not looking for it. But. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, a matter of like, when I re- say I was going to write an article for a magazine or something like you're going to write, you know, how to call bulls early season. And essentially, not to mention, you're only going to get like 500 to 1,000 words. And so the article is pretty short in comparison to an hour or three hour long conversation. But you're going to write 
best case scenarios. And so a lot of articles and books are like, okay, here's how it's done. (laughs) But with a podcast, you have this conversation where I can be like, well, yeah, but what if, well, what would you do here? And there's just like, you can dive into that conversation so much deeper than you can by just writing a book or writing. And some books are very in depth, but I would, you know, compare it to writing a blog post or a magazine article. It's just podcasts have much more depth to them. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more raw. That's what I like about yeah. it. And and people are willing to share, you know, for some reason, like you would almost never write down in an article, all of your mistakes or the dumbest things that you've ever done or, you know, yeah. the, the time that everything didn't go right. But people just love to talk about that. And honestly, it's, it's good podcast material and, and, uh, and it's good for the industry too, I think, just to, to hear that it's not always, you know, it's not always an Instagram feed out there. It's not always sunshine and rainbows and like, oh yeah, I just got my bowl every single time and everything worked out. Yeah. So. And then that's, the, I mean, that's the appearance that a lot of, you know, places and things is that you look at Instagram and you're like, oh man, it's so easy. Or it's easy to jump down the like, oh, well, they must hunt private or they do this or they do that. And it's interesting because you dive into an actual conversation. I, I do think it, it's better PR for the hunting world for these podcasts to be out there because it gives you a much more rounded perspective of like what we're all thinking, what we're all going through, why we you know appreciate this so much when it's a you know a dead a, a grip and grin on Instagram. It's just it doesn't have like there's no story behind it. You can't hear the passion within it. And so you know it's like on Wapti Wednesdays we have stories and get like you hear it in people's voice and you listen to the elk nut talk about elk hunting and oh. that guy is passionate like and like there's so much to that that dives in i think um that's what really gets people going yeah i agree what uh what were some of your passions before hunting <laughs> um which is funny i don't um so i started hunting super early um and i've always been super passionate about hunting was obsessed with it since I was a little kid. Um, I guess one of the things, I also was into racing, which a lot of people don't know. I was, you know, road quads my entire life. I got my first quad, I don't know, it's probably seven or eight. So not like and not like marathon racing. <laughs> no, no, like uh, four-wheelers, okay. ATVs, if you will. And so I was like really big into that for a long time. I spent most of my life uh, at the you know racetrack. I had my own racetrack, had my own practice track. And so, like, hunting was, uh, you know, I did that. But I didn't really, I didn't, you know, travel outside of the state and do all that stuff. I mean, when you grow up hunting, you're, you know, you hunt locally, and that's about it. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of a short-lived thing. And so, the rest of my year was spent training and racing. And I think there's actually an interesting time in my life where I remember thinking, I was probably 20, 21, and wanted to really pursue like the hunting side of thing and kind of go full time and go a lot deeper into hunting. But there was also like racing and I was kind of torn between the two on what I wanted to do. And I remember thinking, you know, I can always have a hunting career. I can always do do hunting full time. I can only do racing for so many years in your youth. You know, it's not something (laughs) that bids well for uh, for age, I would say. Um, so I actually ended up doing a bunch of racing, um, and kind of just postponed taking hunting super serious. I mean, I was probably more, still more serious hunter than, than the average bear, but, um, I did spend a number of years racing quads. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because back then, like I'm thinking my own experience too, is pretty similar. And like, 
I think, do you think because like social media wasn't around yet, it wasn't like, like, I'm, I know there was guys that were way into hunting back then, obviously, but it was just not as much of a popular thing. Like, you know what I'm saying? It, it wasn't yeah, like, you just didn't know about it. Yeah. It wasn't like, I mean, it, it was a lifestyle. I don't want to say that, but yeah, you didn't know about it. And you just kind of like, well, yeah, of course I hunt. Like, yeah, I just, yeah. we just grew up hunting. Like it's something we do every fall, but it wasn't like a year round obsession it, or it wasn't as easy to, to have that because social media wasn't around, I guess. Is that No, it's, it's so true. And you know, people like to bash social media, but there's a lot of good that comes from it. And, and just in that case and scenario, it's like social media showed us all of our friends that we now have all <laughs> over the country. Yeah. You know, like, and before social media, I didn't have, you know, the friends all over the country that I do that are just like me. And I think that that scales on different levels. Say you're a kid in a super small town. I mean, I grew up in like a nothing town. And no one else hunted as much as there's actually I had one buddy that hunted and he's still one of my good buddies. But if you don't have any friends that aren't the same as you aren't into the same thing, then you just don't have friends. Whereas with social media, now you have a world of people that are just like you. And I think hunting or hunting and social media kind of did that for, for me. It was like, Oh, once I had a social media, I was like, man, there's people that are obsessed. Like yeah. you watched shows, you knew Jim Shockey and Wayne Carlton and all that. And like, you, you know, that was kind of the goal. It was like, oh, man, those guys just hunt all the time. That's super cool. But you didn't realize how many people there were that were just like you, completely obsessed yeah. and loved to hunt, you know, year-round. Yeah, and that's exactly it is you would, you would see them in a magazine or you would see them on TV. And those are, those are so far removed from, you know, a personal mm-hmm. level that they were, you know, it was like, it was like me saying, oh, yeah, like, I know that LeBron James or Kobe Bryant's out there, but, like, <laughs> you know, geez, that's, you know, I'm never going to yeah. be able to reach out to them. But, yeah, now it's like, geez, you could you could DM anyone in the industry and probably get a, some sort of response if you're not a complete idiot, um, mm-hmm. you know, and just start a relationship or bring them value somehow and help them out and become hunting, you know, social media friends, and it's crazy. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. It is a good thing. How far did you – get into like racing like what level were you like was this just like an amateur thing or did you was it ever uh Um, what what are the levels for racing like yeah i mean there's like the professional levels um so to speak and you know in the age that i was in the east coast was much more popular and it was kind of the cool thing to run to the east coast the west coast didn't really have a big race scene and so we had raced um it's called the work series which is kind of an endurance based slash motocross series on the west coast and that had kind of just been getting popular when when we were growing up racing um it's funny because we me and a, a friend we we just grew up racing around what we knew and we didn't really have any perspective of you know who was good or what was good or anything and I don't, i'll never forget we finally went to uh we must have been 16 or 17 our dad took us to uh their first race it was like an indoor race and we took first and second and we we're like oh man this is like these guys are slow this is cool <laughs> and so that's kind of how it all started and I mean, racing kind of got popular uh, as I got older. And so kind of in high school and and whatnot, it was just starting to get back popular. And then we started racing the work series, which was uh, kind of the West Coast up and down series. And then 2009, I was running the Pro-Am division, which is kind of a step under the Pro division. 
a lot of that was due to cost and things with broke as broke as could be at the time. But uh, yeah, and so that's when I was kind of at the peak, and a, it was probably a year before that that I decided, you know, hey, I'm gonna take this super seriously. You know, race the whole series, and um, that uh, breaking my neck, which was not due to a quad race, but um, paralyzed myself, and so. That was kind of like a big setback in the whole racing career, so to speak. But at that time, and that was definitely one of the most important things to me was racing. And then, you know, life changes and you have some perspective and you kind of go a different direction. Um, I definitely want to come back to you breaking your neck (laughs) because we need to touch. You can't just bring that up and then walk away from it. But real quick, um, specifically to racing, how would you say – racing has translated to you being able to handle the backcountry more or better it's it's all mindset and it goes this will tie right into breaking your neck or any big change in life like that but you know racing was a matter like to get to that level at the pro level you kind of you're training every day all day you know you're you're up at 6 a.m and i would ride race every day you know i spend an hour at the track and you're the endurance, you know, you're working on your, which stems a lot from sports in high school, right? So like, it's all a progression. And I think it's just gaining that discipline and being able to train. It's an endurance type racing. So you're spending two hours on the track during these races. And so, you know, a lot of it is just, it's building mind, it's building your mental toughness and building your discipline. And I think that kind of has helped me a lot in my hunting, in the hunting side and being able to be in the backcountry, you know, just pushing and pushing and pushing and just having that mental toughness. Yeah. Um, it, it really, do, it really can apply to like sports or anything like that. But, um, the, the concept of mental toughness, um, what, whether you learn it in the backcountry or before you start hunting the backcountry, it's, it's gotta be a skill that you have. Um, and that's the other thing about racing versus like team sports. Say, you know, I grew up playing football and football is very much a team sport. And when you're down, you know, there's always someone to pick you back up. Whereas racing, you know, it's an individual sport. You, you train alone and you ride alone. And I mean, yeah, you have a team, but everything relies on you. And so that weight is a hundred percent on your shoulders all the time. And I think that's what interested me a lot in, um, in racing over say team sports over football and baseball is just that like, you know, I had a lot of struggles with team sports because it just always, it was tough when you didn't have that much control over it, you know? And that's why hunting appeals to me. Solo hunting appeals to me. Racing appeals to me. It's like win or lose. It's all on me. And like, that's, that's what I always enjoyed. I think that has pushed me to be better at, you know, enduring when I'm solo hunting is just being able to kind of put all the weight on my shoulders. Yeah. So you broke your neck. Yeah. So don't do that, kids. Look, yeah. where, look before you leave. <laughs> don't try that at home. What's uh? T- talk about talk about that. How old were you? Ooh, that's a good question. Twenty two, I think. Uh, so it's two thousand nine, August first. I uh, was down in Nevada working on some of our property, and I just got back to Oregon. And uh, a bunch of friends were at this pond. And so we went up this pond and just, uh, there was a floating dock out in the middle of this pond and there's like a dock that went out in the pond. And, and so, you know, everyone's out on the deck hanging out. And so I was going to run and dive off the dock and swim <laughs> to the floating dock. And, you know, just 
took off running to jump in and dove in. And the floating docks actually held down by five-gallon buckets of concrete. It's kind of out in the middle. Well, apparently one of the buckets of concrete had a big air bubble in it or something. So it would had been floating kind of around the pond. It wasn't attached to the floating dock anymore. So it was kind of on the bottom, but it was just bouncing around the bottom of the pond. And I found it really well with the top of my head. Met it head on. on. I met it head on. And, uh, yeah, it was like almost lights out. I'll never forget. Like I dove and I heard, I remember hitting it. And I remember like that black sensation where you're about to pass out. And it was like, don't black out, don't black out, don't black out. And then I remember laying face down in the water and thinking like, okay, just get your head above water, get your head above water. And from like what felt like minutes, like I couldn't do anything. And I remember all of a sudden, like my head was above water and I took a biggest breath I could. And then it was face back down again, which felt like for minutes, just get your head above water, just get your head above water. And I couldn't do anything. And I was like, I remember thinking like, you have to breathe, you have to breathe. And I was like, it's all mental. It's just in your head. You can hold your breath twice as long. And like all these thoughts are going through my head in slow motion. And I remember my buddy picked me up, one of my best friends. He grabbed me. And as I came out of the water, I knew it was bad because I could see the bottom of my foot. And I don't know if you ever like broken your ankle and you just instantly notice that you're like, you see the side of your foot or the, you know, the, the, the angle is off. Well, I was looking at the back of my foot and I knew it was bad. And uh, Sam had me and I was like, it's bad, isn't it? And he's like, yeah, it's real bad. And I just remember blood everywhere. And uh, he had just gotten back from Iraq. So he was trying to put me on the dock and I'm telling him to leave me in the water, but he like, he checked out. Like he, he kind of went a little bit PTSD on me. And um, so I'm like, we're like yelling at each other and he's trying to put me on the deck. And so finally we just like floated couple other people got there and yeah so we ended up floating me in the water and i just the only thing i remember hurting i knew it was bad i knew it broke and i just remember thinking that i asked if my elbows were bleeding like so many times i was like are my elbows bleeding it it literally felt like i wrecked wrecked a crotch rocket on pavement and just slid on my elbows for 100 yards because like the nerve damage the nerve pain was just completely in my elbows and, like, that was the only thing I could think of. It like, just felt like they were hamburger in the water. Um, but, yeah, we ended up just kind of floating. We got the situation under control and, you know, had someone holding C-spine and waited for the helicopter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's uh, – don't do that, kids. Look before you leap for sure. So, okay, so how – I'm, I'm just playing this out in my head. How deep was the water that you were in? I think it was about, it was about four feet deep. So, I mean, it was shallow. I mean, obviously shouldn't have dove in, but it was just kind of shallow diving through under it and uh, hit, you know, bucket of concrete. So it wasn't super deep, but it also, I mean, the bottom of this pond is like six, eight inches of mud. So realistically, I was just going to shallow dive off the end of the dock and, yeah, yeah, skip over the mud. Man, so many questions. Um, talk about. I'm really, I'm really just curious what you think. I mean, I think there's defining moments in a lot of people's lives where 
how do I put this? It's, it's an accumulation of a lot of preparedness from a bunch of small things that have happened in your life. I'm, I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, um, you know, what you believe or some, I don't know if that's making sense. If there's some key, some key, uh, you know, experiences that you had before that, that, that were allowed you to have the strength to get through that? Or what, what do you think that is in someone that, that, I mean, was it just, or was it a miracle? Um, you know, which I also believe in, um, you know, what, what do you think it is that gets someone through a situation that's life or death, so to speak? You know, it's interesting you say that, and it's hard not to say it was a miracle because it's almost an insult to everyone else. Um, and in that capacity and so, but I think you are right. You know, I truly believe it's, it's a lot, me- it's a lot mental, it's a lot in your head. It's not just in your head though. Cause it's such an insult to say that to other people. Uh, but I do believe that one, when I, so I was paralyzed laying in the water and I remember thinking I was paralyzed. I remember being in a helicopter and being paralyzed. I remember I was in the helicopter and my fingers moved and I was like, okay, game on. And I remember getting to, I mean, you're so drugged up and out of it, but you're in the hospital, you know, people everywhere running around like crazy. And I remember everything had kind of calmed down. And one of the docs came in, it was like super late at night. And I was like, well, what are my odds of walking again? And he's like, well, you'll never walk again, but you know, hopefully we can get some of this back, some feeling back or something, blah, blah, blah. And I remember the nurse starts bawling. And in my head, even though it's super scary to think about now, in my head at the time, it was 100%, well, you're wrong. I'll figure it out. Like 100% wrong. And you go back and you, you had asked about previous experiences. And I do think that was a huge part of it growing up racing and being a little daredevil that I was. Like I was in and out of the ER like it was, you know, the ice cream shop. And a lot of that was, you know, you're like, you break this, you break that, or, and it was just how many weeks am I out? And I remember all the time with racing, it was like, okay, you know, broken kneecap or broken fingers, broken wrist, whatever it is. It's like, Oh, that's a two weeks out. Oh, that's a month out. You know? And so like, it was all with injuries. It became in my head, this thing where like a recovery date, like you always get better, but it's a recovery date. And so, you know, those experiences growing up, make you a little bit tougher and a little bit tougher, a little bit mentally tougher. And so when I was told I would never walk again, it was in my head. Well, you know, you're wrong. I mean, it might be like a three year out or it might be a year out, but I'm like the only thing I have to do in life right now is to fix this. And it was just like blew my mind because as you go through this process and people, you know, you're surrounded by people who are in this similar situation and now in a wheelchair and, you know, they're being taught how to live in a wheelchair a lot of those people, it's like, it just shuts down. And so I think, you know, you have to be the wartime general and just say, okay, what do we do now? Like, how do we fix this? And that was 100%. Like all I had to do, nothing else mattered except learning how to walk again. So every day, that's all we're going to do. Like, I don't have anything else to do. Like, it doesn't matter. Like we're going to figure out how to do this. And, you know, I think from the beginning, it was like, I knew that time was, the indicator, like I remember thinking, I remember a doctor told me like, Hey, it's hard to tell, you know, usually things settle out after about a year. And so in my head, it was like, well, I have a year to grind and like train every day 
to figure out how to walk again. And, you know, maybe it's a miracle. I don't know. Maybe I got super lucky. Maybe it's mindset. Maybe it's a little bit of both, but it's, yeah, I do think it has to do with experiences. I do think it has to do with your mindset. Yeah. And I, you know, back to the miracle side and, and you, you mentioned, um, you know, that that may discredit, um, some of the people that were there and, and I, I actually disagree. I, I believe, um, you know, and not to get spiritual, but, um, I definitely believe in God and I believe that he watches over us, um, all, all the time. And furthermore, um, I don't think you should make the, the misconception that your friend wasn't the miracle, you know, mm-hmm. I, I hundred percent believe that, um, you know, yes, yes. If you believe in an almighty, uh, being like, like a God or heavenly father, that, that he could have reached down and pulled you out of that water himself. But I believe more often than not, he's more subtle than that. Um, I believe that he's going to use, if your buddy's there and he's had experience in Iraq and he knows how to, you know, whatever, he's going to use him as an instrument in his hands rather than, you know, because, because then, then you're both blessed. I think, uh, you're obviously blessed for being taken care of and watched over and he's blessed, um, you know, for helping someone in need. Um, and so yeah. anyway, not to, not to get too deep into that, but how, um, talk to me now about how insignificant backcountry challenges seem after, <laughs> after an incident like that. You know, it's, um, it's, it's actually a catch 22. Cause like we, even with, you know, yes, I can walk again. I still have like crazy issues, um, like foot drop and like fatigue and like a lot of things that are frustrating to deal with on a super demanding hunt because I'll have a lot of failures. Um, but at the same time, like you said, like I can always look at, and be like, you know what? Beats doing this in a wheelchair. Because like, I would have to convince some really good buddies to push me around in this backcountry with a, with a <laughs> friggin' wheelchair. Um, so you know, it does. And like, I think that's important to have those things. You know, anytime you're enduring anything, um, whether it's a solo hunt or even just a super demanding hunt or whatever it may be, like to, to have those things to be able to reflect on and be like, I'm choosing to do this for fun this is definitely not the worst pain I've ever been in in my life. Um, and it kind of helps you push you forward. And, and I think, you know, mental toughness to me, mental toughness is the most underlooked thing in the hunting world. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's something I, I used to struggle with and now it's super easy. It's not super easy, but I definitely something I would pride myself on, but I, I see it within a lot of people and I don't hear it talked about at all. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, we all go out there, and there's so many times you want to go home 10 days into the hunt and you're like, this sucks. I miss my family. I miss showers. I miss warm meals, yeah. like all those things. And I, you know, like, I think the more struggles you've had in life, the easier it becomes to endure those. Talk about how we develop, you know, and, and, and obviously a, a significant, um, you know, catastrophic incident like you had will definitely speed that mental toughness up, I guess. But for someone who, you know, I, I, for example, I haven't had a real, you know, um, you know, I, I've never been paralyzed, uh, temporarily mm-hmm. or anything like that. Talk about how we develop that mental toughness, 
for the backcountry. Yeah, yeah, just dive into some water, break your neck, get through that, you'd be all right. So just no. four feet and then just dive in at like, what, a 30 degree? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just go through. And you want to be running pretty fast because it's actually a really tough fun. So if you, <laughs> uh, I do think, I think about that a lot. Like, how do you, how do you instill mental toughness? And take kids, for example. Like, I don't harm kids, but one of the things you think about is like, all of my struggles have created me, but yet we like keep our kids away from adversity. And so like, which I a hundred percent has believe has created my mental toughness. So in that capacity, like how do you, how do you formulate mental toughness and endurance? Right. And I think it's, it's, it's definitely doable. You know, I think it's simple as taking a cold shower, like turn your ice shower on, taking an ice, shower for 30 seconds a day moving it up to where you can take entire cold showers right mm -hmm. it's so simple but yet it it is building mental toughness whether it's you know even not fasting maybe it's like you spend a week eating nothing but rice and beans <laughs> we had this conversation mm -hmm. last night on who could go the longest eating lard and bread sandwiches or something like that <laughs> and you know i think it's simple little things like that that build that mental toughness i really implore everyone to do a solo hunt like i really seriously think that everyone should do seven days minimum in the backcountry by themselves and it'll teach you so much about yourself and like everything else just becomes a little bit easier and i think having experiences that test your willpower and acknowledging when that happens and being like, oh, this is one of those tests. You know what I mean? Like when you're just miserable and it sucks and you could take the easy path, like test yourself a little bit, always yeah. testing yourself. And I think that's that's how you develop it without significant <laughs> injury and or catastrophic events. Yeah. I believe that, you know, it doesn't really matter what we're doing in life. It, uh, you don't have to race quads. You don't have to jump into a pool. You don't have to. You know, I played sports. I played at the college level. That helped me develop mental toughness. Um, mm -hmm. I, I hunt, you know, in and of itself you have. But I, I think the point is it doesn't necessarily matter what your circumstance is because every day, every day, you probably have a choice to either be mentally tough and exercise that and get stronger at mental toughness or not. And it, it can be, you know, it, it happens in everyday life. Um, for example, you know, we, I had this podcast with you this morning and I like to go to the gym in the morning and I had to wake up 30 minutes earlier to squeeze it in. And as soon as that alarm went off this morning and I rolled over, I had an opportunity to either be mentally tough and get out of bed and go to the gym or not. And then, uh, you know, just the, the next thing and the next thing at work, I have an opportunity to either be mentally tough and do what I need to do at work or not, you know, and, and it's, it's those tiny little, uh, those tiny little decisions, I think that you probably made a hundred times, millions of times, probably before you smashed into that, um, you know, that concrete block or before you go on a hunt. And those, those are the ones that, you know, it's like, it's like when a, a bodybuilder, in my opinion, it's like when a, a power lifter goes for a personal record or whatever, it's not that mm -hmm. one lift. It's all the lifts before that. And all the training before that, that seemed relatively insignificant that he was just doing day in and day out. 
you know, yeah. the, and, and that, that's, that's, I think, I think the only answer I've ever come up with is, you know, it's the little daily things that are going to shape you because if, if you can't overcome those, you know, get out of the, out of bed in the morning to go to the gym at, you know, five thirty instead of six, like mm-hmm. how are you going to walk yourself off the mountain when you break your leg and you have no other option? And you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. But. No, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting is that one of the things I think about a lot now is like self-discipline versus letting go. And it's like, you can be the toughest, baddest dude on the mountain, but there's still a fine line between hard and stupid. <laughs> and so making, you know, it's just not about being hard. You know, I think when you're in your youth, you you like, you want to be the baddest mofo there is and, and, you know, endure the coldest weather and all that. But it's like, I think as you get older, you have like these reflect, like, am I making the best use of time? And I think that comes as big into the backcountry now. You're, you know, you're always like, man, I could hike up all these mountains, <laughs> but is it an effective use of my time? Kind of picking and, and picking and choosing your battles, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's like walking the fine line now is kind of just understanding what is, what is being effective and what is being efficient. Yeah. But. So on a little bit lighter note, um, I want to talk to you. You own a couple of businesses, don't you? Yeah. I want to. I just want to talk about the mental toughness um, that that comes from that because I, um, you know, I, I think that that's there's something to be said for that. Um, you know, talk talk maybe just about the advantages and disadvantages first of all before we jump into the mental toughness. Like, talk about the advantages and disadvantages of of being a business owner relative to to hunting and hunting the backcountry so here's a funny story for you i i got into business for myself because i wanted to hunt more and i knew well i knew <laughs> it's a funny joke i had i read um, a little book called the four hour work week back in 2009 tim ferris and tim ferris the man and i had this great idea you know these guys were building businesses and, and basically just living on the beach and i was like you know what I want to do the same thing, but I want to live in the backcountry. Like, I just want to hunt all the time and have this company that makes money and I don't have to do anything. Such a great idea. And, you know, <laughs> it's a funny joke now. And this is like, you laugh. And I said, I own a couple of businesses because I always joke that my businesses own me. Um, and when it comes to hunting, it's like, it's really hard for me to be able to get away anymore. And it's like, you have to make that cognitive decision to just do what you love because at the end of the day like what is the point of owning your own business if you can't go hunting um and that's kind of why i got into it you know it was to hunt more and i really really try to keep that but some days some years is better than others and some years you know you don't get out much um but i don't know that i would change it for the world like i work on projects that are interesting to me and you know that's i think my biggest takeaway at this point in life is like, you know, being able to just work on projects that are enjoyable and interesting. And if something's not interesting anymore, you know, I get to go do something new. And I think that's, I don't, I don't know, my biggest takeaway of being an entrepreneur, I can't, I, I couldn't see it going any other way. For me, it's just all I think about. So I don't know if I could do anything different. Yeah. Plus and, I'd be a terrible employee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That makes two of us. Um, <laughs> um just lost my train of thought when you said that. Um, no, and that's, that. that's, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of Tim Ferriss stuff and, um, you know, and even kind of a, a Gary Vaynerchuk uh, mentality. 
Um, who's another good example? Rich Dad Poor Dad's kind of, kind of yeah. that on that platform that I think you know the the, the answer or the I I think the the point is you know if you're if you're a guy that's wondering if you should um, you know start your own business or just work for someone. Like if you're sitting there contemplating that, it might you might not be that guy, you know? You're because those those type of guys, they're just doing it. They're already the, it doesn't matter whether they think or not. Like the, it's just in them, you know. Like you said, yeah. like you just couldn't imagine. Like yeah, it sucks sometimes, but you just can't imagine it um, going any other direction. Talk about relative to just the business side, and I know some some guys get weird when we talk about business stuff on here. Um, you know, I've had guys message me, well, I don't want to learn about business. I want to learn about hunting. You're like, well, I'm sorry, but I don't really care because I love business. <laughs> and this no, is a free I podcast. I entrepreneur stuff all the time. Yeah. I was always like, man, I feel bad, but like, I'll just nerd out on some entrepreneur stuff. Yeah, I think it was the Gritty Bowman maybe had an episode with like Corey Jacobson and they were talking about one of these books. And it was like, it's still one of my all-time favorite episodes and they don't even really talk about hunting. <laughs> Um, it's just, you know, I, I, I learned a lot about business stuff on, on the back end from actual business podcasts, but then it's nice to hear guys like you that are, that I know are hunters to, so I can relate it to myself, but talk, mm-hmm. talk about just briefly talk about the importance of going into business that was something that you're passionate about rather than just going into business. Oh man, like, that's something I talk about all day. It's funny because when I, my first company is um, an ammunition company and I love old guns and I saw this niche that I could fill. And it was very much like the Tim Ferriss mentality of like, Oh, fill a niche, you know, back in those days, like it was all about, Hey, find a niche and fill it. And then you realize, I think the one thing I learned with uh, powder river was like, this is going to take 10 times longer and be 10 times as hard as you thought it was. <laughs> so you better be like obsessed and eat, sleep and breathe that product. If you want to go into business. And like, the thing is, is like, I love guns. I love talking to old timers about guns, but I knew like the gun world was not me per se. Like I'm not super into ARs. I'm not super into like three gun tactical stuff. And, it was just one of those deals. Like, man, if you're going to, if you like think you want to be in business, make sure you obsess of that product or are willing to at least spend the next 10 years eat, sleeping and breathing that product 18 hours a day. Cause that's, what's about to happen. And I'm not discouraging anyone. Like you had said, like if you want to be an entrepreneur, the scariest thing in the world is waking up at 90 and be like, man, I should have gave it a try. I should have, you know, tried to be an entrepreneur. Um, but know that it's a journey. And I think one of the, best decisions I made was when I started this whole thing, I mean, I've struggled for years being an entrepreneur and I still don't even like calling myself an entrepreneur. Um, but I knew that like, Hey, this is where I want to be when I'm 50, when I'm 60, everything is just a path there. It's not that I'm trying and I'm going to get there in a year or two. Like to me, I look at everything as like, I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm making it up as I go. But at the same time, I'm hoping that I get there by the time I'm 50 and then I'll be happy. You know, like that's, that's kind of the goal. And I think that's the mentality you have to look at it. And it goes back to the podcast thing. If you want to play short game, like, Oh, I'm going to make money doing this thing. It's just not the case. It's just not how the world works. And you have to invest, you know, long game and say, okay, here's where I want to be. And this is moving in that direction. You know, say you want to be a hardcore backcountry hunter. It's, 
it's moving in that direction and not saying, oh, I'm going to kill a 350 bull every year for the first five years and that'll make me successful. That's not successful. Like you just have to work at it years and years and like look at it. Okay. When I want to be, this is what I want to be when I'm, you know, 50 or 40 or 30, whatever it may be, but it's looking at it as a long game and learning. It's, it's more about being able to learn the material, not just pass the test. And I think we all kind of had this, uh, way of getting through school. Like, especially, I know I did, like I passed tests. I didn't learn material. And <laughs> so like you go through life, just being able to pass a test and like hunting and entrepreneurship, all that stuff. It's not just being able to pass a test. It's about learning, being able to learn the material. And like, that's just so much more important than killing a 350 bull. Yeah. You know, you hear all the different statistics and, and I, they're, they're slightly modified every time it seems like, but it's like, oh, 50% of businesses are going to fail in the first year. And the, you know, then the remaining 30% of those are, you know, the, you know, they're going to fail in the next year. And by the, by the fifth year, 90% is going to fail or whatever the actual statistic is. And no one really knows, I don't think, but um, the point and the, I think the takeaway from that is, and I've been down this road far enough to understand what, what I think I'm going to say here. And that is the problem. And the reason that so many businesses fail in my opinion is that you just go into a business to go into a business and not Mm -hmm. that it's not a good idea. You know, my buddies and I have sat around and had all these great, um, you know, ideas of businesses. Um, and when it, you know, when push comes to shove, it's just, it's a business that would work. It's a business idea yeah. that would work. It's not what I'm hundred percent passionate about because like you said, if it is, you're going to make it work, you know, yeah. and, and you have to have that, you have to have that dynamic. I think, um, otherwise you'll be just one of the statistics, you know, because like you said, when 15 hour days roll around, you know, for years on end or whatever, um, it's just not worth it unless it's your thing that you're just adamant and you know, you're going to make it work. Oh yeah. And I think a lot of it's just burnout. It's not that the business wasn't successful. It's that it's burnout after five years. You're like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really care about this widget. And a lot of it is, I think, you know, when you get into business, it's about scratching your own ish and understanding the issue. And if you look at, I don't know, say the backcountry fuel box, like I just launched this. And the irony is that I gave this idea away. Like the two or three people, I was like, Hey, here's a great business idea. So everyone that says there's not enough ideas out there, like <laughs> I have more ideas than I ever have time for. And the idea literally stemmed from like my own scratching my own itch. Like I was like, man, I love all these. There's a ton of cool stuff, whether it's Heather's Troy, off grid, green bellies, like finding new stuff was an issue for me. Cause I don't, I just don't have time to order all these things. I didn't want to pay. Like you don't want to order one thing to try it, pay shipping, all this. And so I didn't even know about these subscription box things. And Kelsey had this, um, box it was uh i don't know some fashion thing and i was like what this thing comes every month and i'm like i literally remember thinking like i wish i just had one of those boxes that sent me green bellies because i burned through those things that was like crazy and i was like man that's a kind of a cool idea and then it just kind of stemmed from there and the more i like dive into i was like man this is like i need this like this is for me (laughs) i don't really i don't care if anybody else it's kind of like the podcast, you know, the podcast started, I was like, I just, I just wanted to talk to these people. Like, cool. If you know, these thousand people want to listen Scrat- to like, scratching <laughs> your own itch. Yep. Yeah. And that's, what's super important. And what something you're interested in, you know, and I, 
I just think that that's so important because it's going to take a long time. You know, it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah. Well, and having uh, got one of your sample boxes of that backcountry fuel box, like here's my honest take on boxes. I think they suck in general. I think that most box subscription things, frankly, like, you know, there are, there, there are so many of them out there and it's really hard to find a category where you're going to send me something, a box full of all these different things in one category, and I'm going to have an honest use for all of them. You know, let's take, no offense to any of the box deals out there, but let's just take like an archery one, for example. I've seen these, and I I guess I could say if you're a beginning archer, then maybe, because you're not sure what broadhead to use yet. You're not sure, Mm -hmm. you know, what Allen wrench set you want to use. You're not sure, I don't know, whatever they send in those things. But for me, it's like, I don't, you could, I could have every broadhead company in the world send me broadheads right now. And I'm still going to use the one that I've been using because I've been doing this for, you know, 20 years and I've found what I like. But the, the backcountry fuel box is one that I'm a hundred percent on board with. Now, that being said, I'm a little bit of a picky eater. And so I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm trying to get over the. You know, the idea, I, I'm not the guy, so I'm not the guy who goes to a restaurant that I've been to before and orders something new. I will always <laughs> order. Justin, we're working on your mental toughness. I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then there's so much, I know there's so many good food items out there. Um, and I did, I tried some of the ones that uh, that you sent me and I I haven't tried some just because some of them are like, you know, overnight deals that I'm, I just haven't had a chance to use yet. But no, th- this is the one though that I'm, that's what I'm saying though. This is a box that I can get behind because it's a food item. And, and, you know, as long as it's not something you're allergic to, like you can always try something. There's multiple options out there. There haven't been multiple for those who just got started backcountry hunting. Let me paint a picture of what we've been doing for 15 or 20 years. Mountain house and mountain house and mountain house. And uh, what was it? Cliff bars. Um, Oh (laughs) oh my gosh. If I ever see another cliff bar again, I will throw it as far as I can. I, I'm ruined. Like I cannot, part of that was wildland fire. Um, They would always supply us with those for wildland fire. And like, I I can't even eat one anymore. I can't. Um, But that, that's the world that we lived in. And we were makeshifting all these freaking like lunches and like, oh, I can do this cool thing. <laughs> and like now, yeah. just in the last like, I don't know, what would you say? Probably five years or less. Like, oh, not even. Like, yeah, yeah I would two say like years. Three years. Yeah, yeah, two, three years. Like, yeah, it was Mountain House. It was the go to. And I remember when Mountain House was like, what's this? Like, <laughs> what? Yeah. I'm like, this is way better than packing a can. MRE. Of yeah, MREs. <laughs> you remember those? Oh, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, MREs were the only, that was what we did. We would throw a, um, you know, a pack of the, the ham slice was the one that I always looked for. Cause that was the one that was like, okay, I think I, I know what this is actually. Um, yeah. everything else was just random mush, but yeah, man, the last like two years, there's been so many awesome companies coming out and like, I'm so excited for it because it's going to, it's just going to get better. It's like the podcasting thing. It's going to competition and people are going to have to make things better and taste better. And just, I'm excited for it. So, Oh no. And that was, that's a huge part of it. It's like, man, there's so many cool things. Like I just want to try them all. 
and I mean, that's kind of where it stemmed from. But yeah, I totally remember the days. Like I used to have, I used to, my old job, I worked um, for a contractor that we did a lot of military training. And so I spent five years kind of military bases in the military community. And I would always like find a gunny and trade him, you know, we'd trade pizza for a case of MREs. So I have like a backstock of MREs deep. Cause that was like the cool thing to have back then. I was yeah. like, man, I got MREs for hunting now. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I would like pull them apart and make my own. And oh yeah. like For you teenagers oh, and probably like early 20 somethings, MRE stands for meal ready to eat. And they're like, they're literally a military deal that came in this like super thick plastic. I mean, the thing weighed like five pounds and uh, you would rip this thing open and there's like, you know, all these different uh, food items, a main, main course deal. Some of them you were able to like heat up with, uh, you know, the combustible uh, water, you know, you know, basically science um, is, <laughs> is what it was. Just science. Science would heat up your meal for you. Um and it was it was terrible. These things were made to probably have a shelf life of I don't even want to know how many years, uh, and they were probably just leftovers from the military from I don't know how many years, and uh, and it, it was brutal, man. Like so, I got a funny funny thing that's about to happen. I don't know when this is gonna air, but uh, so my buddy Bam, you probably Bam Bam, yeah, uh, 69 on Instagram. So I sent Bam a box. He was like obsessed with it. He's all excited. He ate everything in the box. He's been texting me like, man. Where's my box come? Where's my box come? And so I am literally putting an M- a vegetarian MRE in his box and shipping it to him. Like he's gonna get a regular box afterwards, but he's gonna be so excited and then he's gonna open it and be like, "What? Oh, it's gonna be so funny. Oh, it's gonna be perfect." <laughs> if you send me an MRE, our business interaction will be done. <laughs> no, just Bam. Only Bam is getting an MRE. Perfect. <laughs> um. That's awesome. Back into fuel box. You just kind of launched it. It's a, a monthly subscription, but I was looking at it yesterday. Um, make sure you use the, the uh, TRO code, which <laughs> I try that. So we'll, I'll get to that later, but it's, it's, <laughs> I, I, anyway, I'm going to tell you a story about your TRO code. I, uh, Everyone tries it everywhere. I know. I get text messages that are like, hey, TRO code doesn't work for I this. Was, I'm like, I don't even know who that is. I got, it work I got on, uh, I was actually on your your uh, Powder River website, and I want to talk to you about <laughs> some ammunition. And it's like, oh, do you have a code? And I'm like, oh, yeah, TRO, and apply. And it's like, this is an invalid code. I'm like, what the heck? No, it's not. It's the owner. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. But, yeah, so... Anyway, back to the hold on, back to the backcountry fuel box. Um, it was like thirty something bucks, but if you use the TRO code, it was dropped it to like twenty nine ninety nine, which the value of that is, you know, you're getting like what forty or fifty bucks worth of food, um, yeah. and it's just going to be shipped to you monthly. You uh, you could freeze it or pause it at any time, which I think was a big one for me. Um, I spend you know a lot of time in the backcountry, but. You know, honestly, 12 boxes of this a year, because again, for me, I'm going to be honest, like it's not, I'm not looking to supply my hunts with all this stuff. This is more just, um, me trying a variety of things so that I know what to stock, you know, uh, in, in my, in my backpack, but that's, that's kind of what it's designed for anyway. So, um, yeah, backcountry fuel box is at backcountryfuelbox.com. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Check it out. Um, like I said, it's, it's one of the few boxes that I can get behind. There's another one that, uh, uh, 
Sawyer uh, is doing. That's yeah. a, like just a shirt and hat uh, box, which again, I think that that's a practical one that, you know, you can always wear. Uh, I'm a hat freak um, from my baseball days. Um, you can always have another hat and, and t-shirts for the gym or whatever. So that's another one that I like, but for sure. And we don't have to shop for clothes, which is cool. That's so <laughs> like my entire goal here is like, hmm, how do I get all these things and not have to actually do anything to get them? <laughs> Perfect. Right. Yeah. Outdoor, outdoor thread box. We're just crushing it with that box. Uh, it's doing super good. Yeah. Um, so like like I was mentioning, we have to go back to your uh, your Powder River um, for multiple reasons. But first, I wanted to. Um, so I have been getting into. Okay, okay, let me back up. Talk about this picture that I've seen you. Was it last year of you with this this elk, bull elk, and you shot it with a with a Sharps rifle? Is that right? Yeah, I think that was 2016. 2016. First bullet first I shot with Ben Sharps. That would make sense because I think that was about the time I got onto your podcast and that, you know, that would have been about two years ago. Um, why uh, why a Sharps rifle? You know, it's, it's funny. I've uh, been a bow hunter my entire life, but also like super into lever guns my entire life and never really crossed the two realms. And I was talking to one of my buddies, the adventure cowboy. And he's like, he's like, man, you need to do a hunt with the sharps. It'd be so cool. Cause he hunts with the sharps all the time. I was like, that would be freaking awesome. Cause I shoot sharps all the time. And I was like, I never even like, it never dawned on me. And <laughs> I, uh, the more I like kicked around, the more I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Do it. And so it ended up 2016 drawing a good rifle tag. And I was like, of course I'm going to use my sharps. And it turned out to be one of like the coolest experiences, coolest hunts I've been on in a long time. Like I just, I don't know. I just feel like a mountain man carrying a sharps around in the woods. And <laughs> I just freaking loved it. And so from there, like I've kind of been like, yeah, I want to, I want to hunt with sharps a little bit. It's just, I don't know. It makes me feel like I went straight back to the 1800s and, and out chasing elk in the mountains, like a real mountain man. So yeah. that's kind of where it stemmed from. Uh, I guess it's a little bit of, of a challenge for me. You know, it's kind of that cross between, I, I get rifle tags. Like I don't, have anything against bow hunting rifle hunting crossbow hunting i don't care what you use um to me it's just about more seasons like i if i could only hunt elk and bow season that would kind of be a bad deal so you know like rifle hunting too but it adds that little bit of challenge where you know i use the sharps gotta get a little bit closer get a couple hundred yards and and uh open sights like i don't know i just love open sight rifles for me it's huge i love love shooting open sight rifles yeah, it reminds me of like growing up shooting jackrabbits as a kid with my uh, yeah my Marlin uh, twenty two lever action. But oh, for yeah, sure. so if if you're not familiar with the sharps, um, you can watch if you haven't seen the movie Quickly Down Under, um, then you are dead. That movie's loosely based on my life. Yeah, then you're dead to me <laughs> and Cody apparently because it's the, one of the it's one of my top probably five for sure. But yeah, that's that's the rifle that uh, that Quigley shows up with. Uh, he's the sh- the famous sharpshooter that shows up, and uh, man, that that scene of him smoking that uh, bucket, oh, about he, he guy says, oh, how far do you want him to go? And he's just acting all nonchalant, and he's getting his rifle ready, and he's, you know, putting the sight on, and the guy's just on a dead sprint on a horse, riding straight away from him. He looks like he's seven, eight hundred yards, about you know, nine hundred yards finally just nonchalantly goes uh, about there will do <laughs> and then of course you know the guy's like talking basically like talking the equivalent of talking in his backswing of golf and uh finally just gets 
he gets pissed and just throws it up offhand and smokes the the uh, bucket. So anyway, he's using a sharp. Is that a that's a forty five one ten that he's using? Yeah. Yeah. I think in the movie it's a forty five one ten. I think the I, they've done the math on it. I want to say I've seen it. It was a eight hundred and fifty yards. I've also seen it was twelve hundred and fifty yards. It's a movie. I mean, yeah. it's, it's the principle. Um, it's a thousand yard gun, though. I mean, you, it's a very accurate thousand yard gun. Right. Um, it's a, quite a bit of holdover for a thousand yards. Oh yeah. Talk. Just talk briefly. Um, what you know about kind of the that era of rifles, the single single shot rifles, and just just kind of a brief like you know when they were used and uh, and and if you're familiar with any of the other uh, models of that kind of that time frame i mean yeah i mean the, the rough overlay is that i mean the the sharps is in 1874 and there was a few rifles that were in the 4570 caliber and the 4570 caliber kind of became popular um because it was a government issue gun um you know the trapdoor before that but the sharps became very popular among the buffalo hunters and the elk hunters which is kind of you know, it's sad because a lot of the what happened with all the buffalo hunters and the elk hunters and the commercial harvesting of those animals, and basically we just literally killed them off. Um, so in, in part of use, it's kind of sad that that was the gun that really was yeah. the number one gun for the, for doing that. But at the same time, I don't know. It's For me, it's kind of cool because that's the gun that, you know, all those professional hunters and and uh, I guess killers you call them uh, used back in the day, but at the same, like I said, at the same time it's kind of sad. But I mean, that was kind of the number one gun for the era for commercial meat harvesters. Yeah. And a lot of those guys harvested and you know just took the capes and things like that and sold that. You know, a lot of some of them were used to to harvest meat for the for the army and things like that. But essentially, there's a really good book called uh, Oh man, I'm blanking on it now. I want to say it's the killers or something like that. I'll have to send it to you. I forget what it is. I'll have to check it down. It's in my bookshelf here. Uh, but it just talks about basically the history of, of commercial harvest of elk, so to speak. You mentioned the, uh, the trap door and that's actually what I want to talk to you about. So I've been, uh, talking with my buddy, uh, Corey, that's, uh, Corey Beckendorf that's been on here a couple of times. He's a gun, gun nut. And he, uh, he kind of, you know, I, I had, I had an interest in that Quigley down under is always one of my favorite movies. And so I've, uh, you know, maybe a month ago or whatever, I was like, man, I want to, I want to find a sharps and, uh, apparently sharps rifles are very expensive, um, <laughs> especially for a, one that's in decent shape. And so I was kind of bummed out, you know, I'd been looking, uh, for a while and, um, anyway, one day he said, you know, you should if you want to kind of scratch that itch, so to speak, you should look at this trap door and mm-hmm. I, right off. I said, uh, I want, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that's typically, I'm like, no, I want the most authentic or whatever. Well, then, then I got looking into the the story behind the trap door. And like you said, um, the sharps is probably like more the Buffalo gun and the, the trap door was more the government issued uh, military gun. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the trap door was the, the one that was issued to the United States Army, and uh, as far as authenticity, a lot of people argue that the trapdoor is is more authentic than or more authentic than the sharps. Even though it's just one of those things where the sharps was kind of popularized through movies and things like that. Yeah. And I mean, it was yes, it was used, but there are far more trapdoors. And like you said, if you wanted to get in to scratch that 
scratch the itch, so to speak. Corey's definitely right. You could get a trap door uh, much cheaper. Yeah, and so that that brings me to uh, the auction that I just won on Gunbroker. <laughs> oh, did you get a trap door? So I picked up a trap door, um, of, yeah, forty five seventy um, for yeah substantially less than I think I would have had to pay for a, a good sharp. Um, you know, my, my dad's actually a history, high school history teacher. And so that stuff's always interested me. And when I, when I realized the story behind the trap door, um, it, I had no problem falling in love with that. And so, yeah, that, no, that's a super cool gun. Yeah. Um, it'll, it, it should be here. Uh, it, I actually just, just went through the deal and it should be here within the week or two, but, um, so that's what I wanted to talk to you about because I, <laughs> I went to, uh, look for ammunition just I was through one of the sporting goods stores, Sportsman's or something. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's important, uh, or, or, you know, I, I want your opinion, but are those boxes of ammunition that you're going to find in just a regular sporting goods store, um, for a 4570 government, obviously is what I'm talking about. Are those, um, is there different pressure loads that need to go into a trap door? Can you just pull any 4570, ammunition and shoot it through a trap door without really worrying about the pressure no 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 no. do not do that <laughs> unless, I, unless you unless you got it real cheap and you're not really cared about your fingers that, um that, that was a leading part, question by the way i <laughs> i knew the answer uh, no and i you know for the most part i think a stand like, so within the 4570 there's probably three different variations of that it's this uh, trap door is the lowest pressure, standard pressure, and then what they call the magnum pressure. Um, and it's really confusing to a lot of people, but yeah, the trap door is, was originally designed for a black powder cartridge. And so a lot of the ammo is much lower pressures than, say, our standard 4570 of today um, with smokeless powder. <laughs> Ironically, yeah. That's, so that's probably what you're on the, on the site for, looking for trap door ammo. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to ask if you just Googled trap door ammo, because I think we're probably top of Google for trapdoor ammo we, we move a lot of trapdoor stuff yeah um well i uh, that, and that's that's the thing i i didn't even have to google it i just went straight to your deal because i knew that's <laughs> what you sold but and i and i i wasn't gonna buy any of that ammo the other day i just was kind of in there looking to see if they if anybody even offered anything for trapdoor trap door and the, it's, it's too specialized i think so yeah and that's kind of like a lot of what we do as far as um ammunition is you know we have a lot of the specialty type stuff that you wouldn't see carried in sportsman's warehouse i mean some of it you know like the 45 colts and 38 specials and things like that that gets carried but yeah trapdoor is one of those specialty rounds that we do quite a bit of um and as far as you know what, what you're looking for yeah yeah that's super cool you got a trapdoor yeah i'm excited on- i'm excited man if, if you and i here's here's my dream and i'm just i'm just gonna just gonna invite myself right now but <laughs> <laughs> and it could be five years it could be 20 years i don't care but someday we'll get a group of guys and we'll just go on an old school um you know like a maybe a single shot rifle uh over the counter elk hunt or something like that i think that would be awesome like dude we need to talk because i wall tent llamas not horses i know that there wasn't llamas around back then but the llamas are coming okay i don't care llamas on a this old done hunt like it's not how it works well we this might have it. ended before it started then <laughs> <laughs> no we i've got i've got my dad's got a couple horses i i could get down with that kind of old school uh but yeah let's let's do it man that would just be such a sweet like uh whether we film it or not that would just be a, such a sweet experience yeah for sure i'm actually doing one this year 
uh, with the guys from the experience, Dallas is going to come oh, nice. and we're filming something called this old gun. And, uh, you know, just taking that whole thing. And it, uh, hunt I did in 2016 was kind of like, it really teed it off for me. And that's what I want to do. And actually I want to get my entire sheep slam with a sharps. I think that would be super cool. That would be epic. Yeah. So if, if you're into that or you want to get into that, you know, these single shot rifles from, uh, kind of the late 1800s, Look up a trapdoor, man. They are uh, they're very unique uh, rifle. Um, I won't spoil uh, why it's called a trapdoor if you haven't seen it. Yeah, that'll give you something to go look up. But su- super unique of how it loads, and uh, and you'll understand why it's called a trapdoor when you see it. But um, yeah, or you know any of those. There's there's a couple others that I'm familiar with at least in that era. There's the the uh, sharps, obviously that we talked about. There's a high wall. Um, yeah. What, uh, I'd like to get get an elk with a high wall too. That's uh, another goal of mine for sure. Yeah, and there's maybe one other one that I'm not uh, not coming to mind, but that's just kind of a cool era of guns and a ton of history behind them. And I'm I'm excited to kind of get into this kind of stuff. So another one is the uh, the model 1895. Um, I have an 1895 that's chambered in 30 out six. I would love to take that hunting too. It's kind of a nice gun that I don't like really want to take into the woods, but um, I don't That's know. A, that would be a cool one. A single shot? No, it's actually a box magazine. Okay. Lever action. Oh, the other one that I was thinking of was the uh, the rolling block. Remington. Yep. Remington had a rolling block, which is also a crazy, um, just a crazy unique uh, loading, loading mechanism. And um, it's one of the like, yeah. I mean, the, the trap door to me still seems relatively safe. That rolling block is just like, wait, what? <laughs> How's that not? I don't understand the, you know, the mechanics of it. Obviously, I'm I'm an idiot with that type of stuff, but cool, man. The rolling box, the rolling box is strong action. I just, I haven't had much accuracy. And from what I've, you know, experiences I've had, I haven't had a lot of accuracy out of the rolling box. But I know there's guys that shoot them very well. Gotcha. Well, I'm excited. We'll uh, we'll have to touch base. I'm I'm definitely sure. gonna be ordering. Uh, I just can't decide if I should order. Uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to talk to you and just 100 percent make sure that's what I wanted. Um, yeah. Your shipping costs are relatively <laughs> your shipping costs are relatively high unless you order like 300 dollars worth of ammo. And so I think that's what I'm gonna do, um, just to keep that cost per round uh, relatively low. And it's like, mm-hmm. where, where else are you going to get trapdoor ammo? Um, so I, I, yeah. think, I think I'm just going to order a couple hundred rounds from you. So. Yeah, it's uh, shipping ammo is not a cheap event. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, and it, like the more you order, the better it gets. And so that's why we have free shipping over $2.99. Yeah. Um, but like you said, shipping ammo is expensive. Yeah, no, I, I know that's not your fault. So, but <laughs> like, like you said, I mean, who cares? Because where else are you going to find it? You know, so that's mm-hmm. and true if I can support you, that'd be great. So, all right, man. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for well, having me on, man. Hey, we're not done, man. We do this thing called, oh. a, we do this thing called a fire round. Um, and it'll, it'll be quick. So mechanical or fixed blade broadhead. Oh, fixed blade. hundred <laughs> percent. Unless <laughs> it's turkeys. That's, that's mechanical. Yeah. Just get a big old nasty on there. Yeah. Elk, mule deer, or antelope. I already know the answer to this one. <laughs> Antelope. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> Have you oh, ever yeah. even hunted an antelope? <laughs> <laughs> rifle. This will be an interesting one. What's your uh, favorite rifle caliber, backcountry rifle caliber? What is the goal of the hunt? 
all around. No, no specific goal. Just if you had to hunt with one rifle caliber, the rest of your everything. Sheep hunting, moose hunting, antelope hunting, everything. You had to choose one right now. That's a tough one. That's a tough call. Forty-five seventy. <laughs> I can. I mean, I feel like that's what I would choose if I could only hunt with like one caliber, but that's not favorite all around caliber. I would have to. I mean, three hundred wind mags, good caliber for all. If I was going to go all the way around, I mean, I have a three hundred drum that's kind of my meat stick. So that's if I have to go get something, but that's a little excessive for antelope. So I don't know. I, uh, I feel so cliche saying three hundred wind mag, but. <laughs> It's a pretty good all-around cartridge. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That's a tough, tough question to ask an ammo guy. <laughs> yeah. Most guys just rattle it off. Oh yeah, seven millimeter, three hundred. Uh, what's yeah. your what's your dream hunt? Dream hunt. Gonna have to say stone sheep. I think. I don't know. It kind of depends on the day. But I mean, you would think an elk hunt. Another, I, I'll say stone sheep with the, uh, I will, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, so not good at this game. Uh, I'm gonna go stone sheep. Okay. One state. You have one state to hunt the rest of your life. What would it be? Montana. Montana. And then I normally ask. So I, I'm actually curious on. So I ask um, typically, what's your favorite backcountry food item? And I'm actually curious from you more so back to your fuel box. What's been your? And maybe you don't. Maybe it's like saying that you have a favorite child. But what's your favorite um, item that you've had come through your fuel box so far? Mm. Or maybe one that you didn't know about that you know is awesome or something like that. Okay, I will go with. Man, I was just thinking the Heather's Choice Packerins that I had, I hadn't really had those. And I got those literally with a box, just like everyone else last month. And I was, I love those things. They're delicious. So really surprised, I guess I would have to go with Heather's Choice. Yeah. Um, coconut, right? That's kind of a, a little coconut shaving uh, treat. Yeah, yeah. Yep. The little blueberry things. Yep. Those are good. Okay. Um, that about wraps it up. Uh, people can find you, obviously, the Rich Outdoors uh, podcast on any podcast platform, and then Instagram, um, you know, the Rich Outdoors or the Rich Outdoors podcast. Do you still run both of those pages? Yeah, I just kind of separated them so I can yeah. put more stuff and not burn people out on podcasts because we launched, you know, so many podcasts. It's kind of, yeah, it's a lot. So, no, yeah. we did the same Anyone thing with uh, Team Backcountry and Finding Backcountry. Team Backcountry just try to keep that still our just, you know, kind of quality backcountry photos. And then obviously mm -hmm. the Finding Backcountries for our, we did the same thing. So, cool, cool. I don't know. Cool. Yeah. Um, but one, uh, I have one last question, but first, uh, I'd like to give, I'd like to give you credit. Um, like to give you credit for uh first for just being one of the at least the first podcast that i knew about the hunting podcast i think um you know you were you're definitely one of the pioneers in that uh in that arena and uh and i think that says a lot so thanks for um you know because because honestly honestly just listening you know you're you're one of the ones that's been on my subscribe list since basically day one and that's what uh you know, gave me motivation and inspired me to start this podcast. And so, um, that's awesome. Well, thanks man. Yeah. Appreciate that. And, um, also want to give you credit for, uh, you know, just killing an elk with a sharps rifle. Like it's just, <laughs> it's just sweet, man. 
Um, <laughs> I, I I'm I'm getting more into that kind of stuff. I mean, I I've got a a sweet uh, Weatherby six five three hundred that's coming with a muzzle brake pretty soon, and uh, and I'm looking forward to tipping some stuff over with that. But I'm also intrigued when people just kind of get outside the the box a little bit and you know do stuff like kill an elk with the with a sharps rifle so give you credit hey, for just trap, being trap door man you're gonna kill one with a trap door i'll do it i'll seriously do it um first good uh rifle tag that that i have that you know makes sense i'll do it so nice oh, i can't wait to see it man it'd be awesome okay uh last question is why do you hunt the backcountry the experience 100 percent. like i just love testing myself love being in places that few people have gone pushing the limits to me it's all about the experience awesome cody thanks for jumping on man i appreciate your time hey everybody thank you for listening to the finding backcountry podcast if you enjoyed this episode make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends but the best thing you can do leave a rating on itunes or your favorite podcast platform for notes and links to this and other episodes please visit findingbackcountry.com.